Aloha. Welcome to Angry Americans. And welcome to episode 3030. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And if you're not angry, you are not paying attention. Well, let's, let's look at the facts on the ground. Based on the intelligence we have, the reporting we have, of the 11,000 or so detainees that were in prisons in northeast Syria, um, we've, we've only had reports of a little bit more than 100 that have escaped. Uh, the SDF, and we remain in contact with them, are maintaining uh, uh, the guards over top of the prisons they have control of. So right now we have not seen this big prison break. That's our relatively new Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper. In an interview with the always excellent Christian Omanpour. Remember Esper? He's the former lead lobbyist for Raytheon, the massive defense contracting company. Yeah, we've talked about him a lot on this show, and for good reason. He's kind of leading our wars and stuff. And he says only a little bit more than 100 former ISIS fighters have escaped. Only 100. We should not be okay with that, not on any level. It only took 19 enemies of America to execute the 9-11 attacks. And as Colonel Morris Davis, the Guantanamo chief prosecutor, said, if 100 ISIS detainees have escaped thanks to Donald Trump, that's 2.5 times more than all the detainees held at Guantanamo. Only 100? And keep in mind, they really have no idea how many escaped. But what if only a little more than 100 prisoners escaped from, say, Rikers Island Prison in New York City right now? Or what if only 100 prisoners escaped from your local prison? That's good reason to be angry. And that's what Trump has unleashed in the Middle East. And it's just getting started. And shit's getting real. Realer by the day. And stakes is high. Stakes is high. You know them stakes is high. Stakes is getting higher and higher by the day. And shit is getting realer and realer by the day. For Trump, for Congress, for America, for the Middle East, for the Kurds, for our allies, for our enemies, and for the linchpin to all of it, the 2020 election. And we'll go much deeper into all of that later in the show with an extended interview with one of the key figures in the 2020 election, one of the most controversial candidates of all, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, Hawaii. I've known Tulsi Gabbard since she was first elected to Congress back in 2013. She's a post 9-11 combat veteran. She sits on the critical House Armed Services Committee. She's the first practicing Hindu and the first Samoan American member of Congress. She's also the first female combat veteran in history to run for president of the United States. She's only one of three candidates running for president who's ever served in combat and the only and first woman. But none of that prepared her for the political combat she's been involved in in the race to become president, and especially for the last week, as she's been at the center of one of the biggest, most vexing, and most interesting political firestorms of the 2020 race so far. She's clashing with Hillary Clinton after Hillary Clinton referred to her as a Russian asset in a recent podcast interview. Clinton spokespeople doubled down, and Gabbard fired back, calling Clinton a warmonger. It's just the latest example that Democrats eat in their own. Or maybe it's just the primary process evolving in new and crazy ways. I'm an independent, and all of it is crazy to me. But it's an insight into the battle to defeat Trump, the battle to defeat our enemies, the battle for the future of the Democratic Party, 
and the battle to define the future of American politics. It's nasty and it's raw. And we'll get into all of it and why Tulsi Gabbard doesn't drink alcohol, what she really thinks of Putin, Assad, Tucker Carlson, and Joe Rogan, and what she gave up to buy her first car. As the 2020 race rolls on, Clinton and Gabbard are having their own little war within the war. And like so many elements of what's happening in America, Russia is a part of all of it. The Russians want to fuck us up. That is clear. And if you don't think so, then you must be an associate of Rudy Giuliani. The Russians are attacking our elections. They're swapping their troops with ours in northern Syria. And they're playing geopolitical chess. And our president not only can't play chess, he can't play anything. At least anything with rules. And the closest he comes is destroying the global Jenga game on a daily basis. We covered that at length in the last episode. But the Russians aren't the only ones that want to do us harm. There are many out there who want to see us taken down a few notches, weakened, overstretched, or even wiped off the face of the earth. But it's not just black and white anymore. It's not just blue versus gray. It's not that simple. It's not the Revolutionary War with armies lined up across from each other, lobbing volleys of musket fire back and forth. No, it's not like that. It's like a shark tank. And America is the one in the tank. And it is not a good place to be. There's no big deal to be had with Ashton Kutcher, Mark Cuban, or Mr. Wonderful. There's no great deal to be cut. America has real enemies, foreign and domestic. And they're all around us. And they're multiplying. And after the last few weeks of Trump's reckless antics in Syria and abandoning the Kurds, America has even more enemies. As the number of our enemies grow, the number of our allies gets smaller. And thanks to Donald Trump and his enablers, America's global stock is falling faster right now than the valuation of WeWork. And just like smart people who are watching WeWork, we could see this coming. This was predictable. And in just the last week, it's gotten worse. Fast. It's now widely understood that Trump not only betrayed the Kurds, but also our American troops standing beside them. Morale in the U.S. military is suffering and going lower. Morale among our allies is suffering. And morale among all Americans is suffering. If you're not angry, you're not paying attention, especially now. And in the midst of all this madness and carnage, our election next year is the highest stakes possible for America and for the world. Make no mistake, it's war. The 2020 election is a political war of epic global proportions. It's a true referendum on Donald Trump and Trumpism. If he wins, power-hungry, corrupt authoritarianism wins. If he wins, Putin wins. If he wins, Erdogan wins. If he wins, Assad wins. If he wins, oppressive Prime Minister Viktor Orban from Hungary wins. If Trump wins, Boris Johnson in the UK wins. 2020 is a fight for the future of not just America, but the future of the world. And Trump is now the chosen fighter in the ring 
for bad guys everywhere around the world. It's the land of confusion. This is the world we live in. The land we live in. The land of confusion. Remember that song? And the music video with the puppets of political leaders from back in the 80s? It was all about the U.S. versus the Russians. And so is this one. If you don't remember it, that's Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And if you don't remember that video, I'll remind you. It shows a ring and a sand pit fight and a fight to the death between then-President Ronald Reagan and then-Soviet leader Konstantin Chernenko. The crowd is like the UN, with representatives from all the world's nations. It gets worse and worse, the fight gets more and more brutal, and the world roots it all on, and the fight degenerates into nuclear war and global destruction. Yep, it was a powerful music video. And the music videos... The movies, the messages, the enemies, and the stakes of my childhood back in the 80s are back again. It's deja vu all over again. It's the U.S. versus the Russians again. But it's much more complicated now. It's all much more complicated now. It's not the 1980s. It's not Frankie Goes to Hollywood. It's 2019. And more countries are in the ring against the U.S. than ever before It's like a giant game of kill the carrier from your days in the playground as a kid. And it's the Iranians, the North Koreans, and ISIS, and the Taliban, and more and more of the world every day. And it's Trump in the ring, not Reagan. And it's Putin's interest in the ring, not Chernenko. But Putin himself is not even in the ring. He's sending in fighter after fighter, watching it all from the booth, like some kind of evil Dana White, poisoning Trump's water, hitting him from all sides, making sure he takes a fall. And Putin? Putin never even had to step in the ring. This is the world we live in. It's not Genesis anymore. It's not Phil Collins. It's heavier and darker. It's the band Disturbed. And that lead singer with the giant silver fangs pierced into his face and hanging from his lips? Remember that guy? Yeah. It's all much scarier now. It's all much darker now. It's all much faster now. It's all much more fucked up now. And as the titans of the world battle it out in the ring, there are many of America's enemies who will use this moment to burn down as much of the town outside the boxing venue as possible. While everyone's focused on the big fight inside and watching it riveted, they'll break into your house. They'll steal your car. They'll snatch your purse. They'll poison your guard dog. When you're at the big fight, the big game, riveted, locked in, your back door at home is wide open. And your home security systems, they've been dismantled. The FBI, the CIA, the Justice Department, the military... All the home security elements of our home that is America, our homeland security system, has been weakened, eroded, and demoralized. The shield is down. Commence attack on the Death Star's main reactor. Yeah. It's like Return of the Jedi, but it's flipped. 
The rebels are all around us, and they view the U.S. as the Death Star, and they want to knock our shields out. But we can't let it happen. We can't let our guard down. We can't get so focused on the fight happening with and all around Trump inside that ring that we forget to feed our kids. We can't get so focused on the spectacle at ringside, the wild outfits, the crazy celebrities, the loud music, the pyrotechnics, that we get tunnel vision and forget to watch our six. We can't forget about our civil liberties, our free elections, our protections of the weak and vulnerable, our civility, our basic decency, our core American values. But the fight is on. The bracket is set. And it's a fight to see who takes on Trump. It's getting intense. It's getting nasty. More than usual. And Trump, of course, is the worst actor of all. Name-calling, disrespecting, and distracting, and doing what he always does. Calling Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas, bringing up Obama, Pelosi, and the Clintons whenever he can. And not just attacking Biden, his increasingly likely rival, but working to kill his candidacy in the cradle. Not just by playing fair, but by cheating, asking the FBI, the media, Rudy Giuliani, the Chinese, the Australians, and most notably, the Ukrainians, to investigate Joe Biden, to take down Joe Biden. Look, only a sucker wants a fair fight, especially when it's the fight of your life. But most people still, even at the end, follow some kind of code. They have some lines they won't cross, lines of legality, lines that stop war crimes. Samantha B. talked about it passionately and powerfully in her last episode. If you haven't heard it, go back and check it out. Some people have an honor code, lines they won't cross. But Trump doesn't care about any of that. And the systems and the Democrats have proven they're not able to stop him. So here we are. President Mayhem is a runaway train of destruction on our great country, our great American experiment, and the rest of the world. I'm your cat. And ever since you brought me home that day... (laughs) Well, I've been plotting to destroy you, sizing you up, calculating your every move. You think this is love? This is a billion years of tiger DNA just ready to pounce. President Mayhem, that's what he is. And some of the destruction he's caused can never be repaired. Ask the parents of the dead Kurdish kids. But we have to stop the runaway train. And 2020 is the best chance to do it. It's our mission. It's our focus. It's our top priority. We got to get his hands off the wheel of our country. And there are two sides. The side that wants to keep him there, driving the locomotive off the tracks and potentially off a cliff. And the other side that wants to stop him. And in the fight to stop him, in the way our American election process is designed, there can be only one. There can be only one. Yes, just like in Highlander, eventually there can be only one. And that's where we are now, in the fight to select who will be our street fighter in the kumite of global stability, the blood sport to determine our future. For centuries, the society of the Black Dragon has sanctioned an ancient rite of combat known as the kumite. The 2020 race for president of the United States is blood sport it is the kumite it's also old school ufc where biting eye gouges and fish hooks are legal the refs are non-existent or irrelevant 
and there will be blood. Lots of blood. All around the world, on battlefields in places like northern Syria, and on the political battlefield of the 2020 race. And politically, people will die in the ring. Some will go down. Make no mistake, this is the fight to end all fights. And the fighters are ripping each other apart, more and more by the day. While the wolves are also at their heels. The Russians, the corporate interests, the white nationalists, the status quo, the media, they all want scalps, no matter the long-term costs. They're out for self. And most of the candidates running for president are actually doing it to help to be the helpers for noble reasons. I really believe that. Of course, some are just out for self or out for power, but most of them, they do want to make a change. Even if they're misguided or just flat wrong at times, they do want to make a change. And all of them want to beat Trump if they don't eat their own first. So on November 20th, you'll have your next Democratic debate in Georgia. And MSNBC announced this week that the fifth Democratic presidential primary debate in Georgia will have four moderators, and all of them are women. Moderating the event on November 20th, which is being co-hosted by MSNBC and Washington Post, will be Rachel Maddow, who joined us in an earlier episode. Go check that out. The great Andrea Mitchell, host of Andrea Mitchell Reports and the NBC News chief foreign affairs correspondent, and in my view, a true American legend. Kristen Welker, NBC News White House correspondent, and Ashley Parker, a White House reporter for the Washington Post. It's the latest phase of this process to see who that fighter will be that steps into the ring with Trump and all the others. Also, in 2020 news, and especially for all of you independents like me, there is news. Ed Stack, the CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods and a longtime Republican donor, is testing the waters for a possible third-party presidential bid. Just what we needed. Apparently, he was presented with some focus groups that said matchups look good for him against Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and Elizabeth Warren. He's a billionaire and apparently employing the same consultants that Howard Schultz used to employ. As an independent, I ask you, Mr. Stack, please don't. The presidency is not for amateurs, as we've seen in the last three years. And so the 2020 election will happen as more issues continue to make me angry, make others angry, and will and should have all Americans angry. Because this week, President Trump also said he's lifting all sanctions against Turkey after he just put them on there. And he's also declaring success in Syria as Turkey and Russia fill the void. Over the last five days, you have seen that a ceasefire that we established along Syria's border has held, and it's held very well, beyond most expectations. Early this morning, the government of Turkey informed my administration that they would be stopping combat and their offensive in Syria and making the ceasefire permanent, and it will indeed be permanent. However, you would also define the word permanent in that part of the world as somewhat questionable. We all understand that, but I do believe it will be permanent. I've therefore instructed the Secretary of the Treasury to lift all sanctions imposed on October 14th in response to Turkey's original offensive moves against the Kurds in Syria's northeast border region. So the sanctions will be lifted unless something happens that we're not happy with. 
This was an outcome created by us, the United States, and nobody else. So, after two weeks of backlash, slaughter, chaos, mayhem, and a political shitstorm of epic proportions, the president is attempting to spin the Syrian disaster into a political win for himself. Yep. Welcome to 2019, people. Shit's getting real. Also, it's been reported that there might be possible war crimes. Jim Jeffrey, the U.S. envoy for Syria and the coalition against ISIS, said the U.S. believes that Turkish-supported opposition forces may have committed war crimes. And lastly, a deal without the U.S. has taken place. While all this madness is happening, Russia's winning. Our enemies are winning. Russian President Putin and Turkish President Erdogan met and brokered a deal regarding Syria's civil war. Under the agreement, the Russian military police and Turkish military will patrol the border. The U.S. was not even included in the negotiation. Maybe it's because many members of our Congress are too focused on politics instead of their country and doing some uniquely crazy shit. We're going to go and see if we can get inside. So let's, let's, uh, let's see if we can get in. We're going in. <laughs> yeah, this week... A group of Republican politicians stormed into a secure meeting room during hearings on an impeachment probe into Trump and his dealings with Ukraine. They stormed into the room, a secure room. Florida Congressman Matt Gates and House Minority Whip Steve Scalise of Louisiana led dozens of Republicans into a House Intelligence Committee hearing inside a skiff. If you don't know what a skiff is, it's a sensitive, compartmented information facility. It's one of many secure rooms throughout the Capitol that are limited, strictly limited only to members of those committees, which are Republicans and Democrats. They're limited because that's where classified information is shared. Rank and file staff, as well as any phones and electronic devices are prohibited. Gets told reporters that they're going to go in and see if we can get inside, like he was trying to get inside a concert, bringing in their mobile phones into a classified room and potentially putting the investigation in jeopardy. This is another example of how far out of control things are getting. This is a very big deal. It's a very serious national security problem. Anyone who's been in rooms like this know the deal. You check your phones at the door. I've done it in rooms in Washington. I did it one time in the Situation Room of the White House. I've gone through it inside the Pentagon. I'm pretty sure if most people did what these members of Congress did, they'd be in handcuffs right now. It was a shameless, disgusting political stunt and it was beyond unprofessional or rude. It was dangerous to America. And it's just the latest example of politicians putting politics ahead of their country. These rooms are like a vault. So what they did today was like breaking into a vault for America that holds key valuable pieces of our national security. So just to recap, to bust up testimony from a Department of Defense official on how the president endangered national security for the U.S. and Ukraine by withholding military aid, the president's allies further endangered our national security by blowing into a skiff with their Blackberries and iPhones and jewels and whatever the hell else they had in their pockets. This shit is bonkers. Syria is spilling into chaos. Our Kurdish allies are being slaughtered. The world is watching and our allies are terrified. Our troops are jeopardized and our enemies are celebrating. Yeah, it's war, and our enemies are celebrating. 
and the 2020 election is the single most important event in shaping the outcome of all of it. And we're going to hear from a woman in this episode who's smack dab in the middle of it. She almost certainly won't win the nomination. That's the truth. But she most certainly will have an influence on it. And she was on the stage at the last debate. And after this attack from Hillary Clinton, she may almost certainly pop high enough in the polls to make the next debate. But even if she doesn't, she's not going anywhere. She's going to fight for the Democratic nomination all the way to the Democratic convention next summer and probably beyond. I got into all that with her in a candid, sometimes intense, extended, and pretty intimate interview that will show you sides of Tulsi Gabbard you've never seen before. She's deep in it, and she's got more knives coming at her from more sides than any other candidate except maybe Trump. Maybe Howard Schultz got more shit from more sides, but he's long gone. Tulsi Gabbard's fans see her as a maverick, taking arrows in her back like a renegade John McCain. Her haters see her as a problem, a troublemaker, a traitor to her party or even to her country. Some is because of her positions. Some is because of her positions on the political battlefield. Some is because she's been first on things, like the first female veteran to run for president. Some is because she's been last, like the last to clearly condemn a brutal dictator and war criminal in Bashar al-Assad. Hero or villain, superhero or Bond villain, how you see Tulsi Gabbard depends a lot on where you sit. Some Democrats will hate her forever, for her past positions on LGBT issues, for not passing a party purity test, or for fighting others in the party, or because she's gone too fast. She might be the single most hated person right now among Democrats, with the exception of Donald Trump. Some Republicans love her. Meghan McCain and many others have seen her as a more conservative voice of reason in an increasingly liberal party. And Tulsi Gabbard has real appeal to independents and unaffiliateds. I've seen it especially in the past when I've interviewed her on SiriusXM Radio and when I've talked about her on Twitter. Callers from all background love her and hate her. But love her or hate her or just getting to know her, you'll hear why she's also an angry American. And with good reason. You'll hear what gives her hope, what makes her happy, and more about her vision for the future. And a personal story that you won't forget and won't hear the last of. It's Tulsi Gabbard, uncensored and uncut in the way we only do at Angry Americans. And it's coming at you, as always, deeply entrenched in the four eyes of this show in the same way the spirit and culture of Hawaii is deeply entrenched in the past, present, and future of America. It's a big island of integrity. It's a volcano of information. It's a tsunami of impact. And it's a perfect and powerful rip curl of aloha inspiration. In Barack Obama, Hawaii has already produced and shaped one of the most transformative political figures that has forever shaped our world. And Hawaii also did it in the past with powerhouse American patriots like Senators Daniel Akaka and Daniel Inouye, both legendary and iconic leaders in the Senate, both World War II veterans, and Inouye, a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. They were leaders that helped define a generation of American political leadership 
and American patriotism in a uniquely and powerfully Hawaiian way. And now, it looks like Hawaii's produced another leader for a new generation. Hawaii is a beautiful, complex, powerful, and dynamic place. And the spirit, politics, and people of Hawaii will powerfully shape the future of what America and the world looks like. And in times like this, we can all use a little more of the aloha spirit. And this episode, we've got it for you. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 30. Aloha. Ladies and gentlemen, Angry Americans Worldwide, we have a really fantastic, timely, and interesting guest joining us today. We've been trying to make this happen for a while, and the timing actually couldn't have been better. There's uh, a lot going on. Yeah. So, Aloha, yeah. Tulsi. Yes. Start the conversation with Aloha. The great and powerful Tulsi Gabbard has joined us here <laughs> in New York City. It's good and, to be here. Thanks for having me, Paul. And I, and I wish you Aloha. You have taught me about the Aloha spirit. It's so necessary, especially now, don't you think? Yes, very, very much so. <laughs> and you brought like sunshine to New York. It's like sunny and I was warm today. I, I was packing up uh, early this morning and I, I asked my sister to go and check the temperature because I was at coats and jackets and scarves and yeah, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful day. And uh, we normally start the interview with a drink or a cocktail. And, and I ask folks, we are truly making history today. Yeah, right? we are. you actually, <laughs> and I asked you what you would like to drink and you said, I don't drink. Yes. And so as the first, which, which, uh, I think is an insight into someone, right? It's not so much about what you drink, but yeah. it's about who you are. So yeah. tell us, why don't you drink? I never have. Um, I've never, never drank, never tried any different drugs. I just, uh, um, High on life, man. In your whole life, my whole life. How did you manage that in Hawaii? Yeah, That's see, like really I, impressive. What, what you like, what did you just say about Hawaii, like, Paul? <laughs> you never smoked in Hawaii. That's like Barack no, Obama I, didn't I, pull that off. No, I just, um, I honestly, I never wanted to. I never really felt tempted. Uh, some of my friends, you know, yeah. uh, partook. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, literally, I just, I was just very content and satisfied, and never felt the need to. Um, um, seek any help from anything else. <laughs> got it. so, but we have water. So yeah, we will we've be got hydrated. water. Like if if I'm if I'm uh, you know out an event or something like that, usually you know I'll ask for a Shirley Temple because okay. that's always that's okay. always a good bet, safe bet. I got. Do you drink caffeine? Like how I, do you? Keep, you're keeping up actually, a pretty intense I don't. pace. Most, I don't because I uh, look. I I do my best to stay healthy. And try to get good sleep and stay hydrated and all those things. And I just find when you start supplementing that, they become crutches. We're not actually seeing like, hey, what's going on with my body right now? And so uh, I try to stay away from that kind of stuff and make sure that I am actually healthy. Because this, this body has a, has a long way to go. I got to make sure it works. Well, and, <laughs> and that came up in the last debate, right? Talking about whether people were physically able to be president. And That's you true. made, you know, you are... Are you the youngest candidate running? Uh, One Pete, of the, I think Pete Buttigieg is the youngest. By like a year or two? It's Something pretty like close, that. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but you are probably the only candidate who's posted Instagram videos of you doing mixed martial <laughs> arts. That is true. So that is true. If, I had so much fun. If I can just indulge yeah, me please, for a second. Please, go for it. Um, so I'm friends with a guy who's a manager for a bunch of uh, UFC fighters. 
he represents some fighters from Hawaii, who's how I got to know him. And uh, he represents this amazing fighter uh, out of China named Zheng Wiley. Uh, I saw on her Instagram one day that she was trying to come here to Boston for fight night recently, uh, but her visa was rejected. So I called Brian, her manager. I was like, what the hell's going on? She's been here before. She just made history in becoming the first fighter out of China ever to uh, become a UFC champion. Uh, she's 29 years old and uh, just just amazing, amazing, talented, skilled fighter. And anyway, there was some bureaucracy and some paperwork. We were able to help. We contacted uh, uh, folks who could help her just get the interview she needed, straighten out the problems. Long story short, she came. I happened to be in Boston that day. And uh, they let me come and like train with her and I got to kick and punch some pads. And I had the most fun uh, doing that than I've had in a while. <laughs> I can imagine it was necessary. I, I was laughing I'm, the whole time. I'm trying to think of all the candidates on stage. I'm trying to think of anybody could kick your ass. I don't think there's anybody up there, in, no. right? And now, especially now that I see you training in mixed martial arts, yeah. you're coming from no. the military, right? And I've, I've done, mean, you know, I mean, military, obviously we learned basics, combatives and all that kind of stuff. But I grew up doing martial arts too. I was... Uh, my my younger sister was more into like becoming the ballerina and the actress and everything else, and I was, uh, um, yeah, martial arts and and uh, having fun rough and tumble with with yeah. our brothers. <laughs> and it prepared you well for the rough and tumble cage fight that is the presidential election. So uh, anything yeah, interesting going on? One. Anything interesting going on? It's lately? totally <laughs> boring. It's I mean I'm trying to I'm trying to pinch myself to stay awake through this whole thing. <laughs> so we scheduled this a couple weeks ago, right? And in the meantime. This clash has now erupted between you and Hillary Clinton. So unexpectedly, so. So what's what's your latest take on this? And let me ask you. Most of all, everybody's tracking on this from the outside, right? Has she called you, or have you called no. her? No. So have you, you've met her before in the past, years right, I ago. Assume. Yeah. But the two of you haven't directly spoken. No. Since all this happened. No. It, it came as quite a surprise, to be honest. Once I started seeing the headlines popping up on Friday, I was traveling to Iowa from New Hampshire, and um, I, I was I was quite surprised to see the comments that she was making and the news stories that were being generated from it, and uh, obviously felt pretty uh, both disheartened and outraged. Um, that these kinds of accusations and allegations that somehow I'm being groomed by or an asset of a foreign country or Russia in this particular instance, um, again, without providing any kind of facts or evidence or anything whatsoever to back it up, uh, this would be outrageous uh, coming from anyone towards anyone. We're talking about coming from the former first lady, former secretary of state, former United States senator for the United States. And these allegations being waged against someone who I currently still am very proud to wear the cloth of our nation, serving as a soldier now for uh, going on 17 years. And I, and I ask because now, you know, the swirl is happening on Twitter and in the cable media and, you know, the questions of what, what did she mean, right? And you came back and hit her, right? You called her the queen of the warmongers, right? But she hasn't clarified, she hasn't issued an additional statement so and and that frankly well, except, surprises except through me. Her, through her uh, her spokesperson, right? Uh, I think his name is Nick Merrill. Yeah. Uh, a number of of the media actually followed up through him, trying to seek clarification of was she referring to Tulsi Gabbard, and the response was yes, or he said something like if the nesting doll fits. Right. And uh, and and there were a number of I think follow ups um, where that was that was confirmed. So. 
you know, to me, given that opportunity to clarify, if that's not what she meant, that that never actually occurred. Yeah. I mean, I've been pretty outspoken about this. I know other people have as well. I mean, it, it's an incredibly serious accusation, but spe- and not just to a presidential candidate, but also to someone who sits, you currently serve in Congress, you sit on the Armed Services Committee. That's right. And you serve in the National Guard. You're an officer in the Hawaii National Guard. Yes. So what I said was, if she has some information, first of all, she should provide it. And if she did, you know, David Pluff's podcast is probably not the most appropriate place to drop it. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you've talked about this a bit, but, you know, what, what do you think's going on here? Like, like why did uh, she yeah. do this? Look, only she can answer that. Uh, but to me, it, it, it is very clear. I think there's two, there's two things that are driving this. Number one is when in 2016, I was serving as a vice chair of the Democratic National Committee. I had started in that position, was appointed that position um, in 2013, shortly after I was elected to Congress. And I resigned as vice chair so that I could endorse Bernie Sanders in the presidential primary in that race because as an officer of the DNC, you're supposed to remain uh, neutral and not mm-hmm. actually get involved in in uh, primaries. Um, I was warned by a lot of folks in Washington, a lot of folks who you and I both know, people who I'm friends with and who care about me saying, Tulsi, uh, you can kiss your your political career could, goodbye. Uh, the Clintons never forget. This is something that you're going to have to deal with forever, as long as you're in politics. And uh, to me, the both direct and indirect smears of my candidacy for president that began literally on the day that I announced that I was running um, are are yet another wave of this kind of retribution. And secondly, and, and you know me, I've been very outspoken both throughout my time in Congress and especially in my presidential campaign about the kind of sea change in our foreign policy that we need to make away from the uh, Hillary Clinton doctrine of interventionism of being the world's police, of, of waging regime change wars, like the ones that you and I have both served in, um, at, versus the foreign policy that I seek to lead our country with, which would, which would end that, end, end uh, the long-held policy of trying to be the world's police, going and toppling dictators in other countries, yeah. and the, the ensuing nation building that follows, and instead make sure that our military is being used to fulfill the mission that that we take an oath to, you know, serve and protect yeah. the interests of the American people yeah. I wanna co- I wanna and our back. country. Sorry, I want to come. I want to come back to that, but I want to. I also want to go under the hood here. Like over the last couple of years, I met you. I think when you first got elected to Congress. Yeah. Right. It yeah. Was how many years ago now? I was sworn in January of 2013. So you came in, in in like a new wave, and every two years or so, there had been a new wave of veterans on both sides of the. That's aisle. right. And when I was running IVA. We'd meet all the new veterans, yeah. you know, left, right, and center. And you and I worked together on issues pretty much from the moment you got there. That's right. And you were, frankly, someone we could depend on. Yeah. And you were someone who we could also depend on to go across the aisle. All you, the time. You and I worked together with Brian Mast, a Republican from Florida, on burn pit legislation, right. toxin exposures, on issues for veterans. You were someone who could go across the aisle. And I, and I watched how that pissed people off. Yeah. Right? But over time, it, it seems like you've gone from, you know, one of their favorites— to now, is there anybody in the Democratic Party that is more hated? Who, who's more hated than the Democratic Party? You or Donald Trump right now? <laughs> I would say Donald Trump. <laughs> but I've never seen it. Like, you know what I'm talking about. I, I neither have right? I. You neither have I. Like, I, I, if yeah. I mention, your, there are a couple of people if I mention on Twitter, mm-hmm. okay? Like some crazy shit comes out, right? Yeah. If it's Megan McCain, uh, Chris Cuomo, 
Um, sometimes Rachel Maddow, but but Tulsi Gabbard. You mentioned Tulsi Gabbard. It brings out <laughs> fire from all sides. Yeah, and and so you know, really, you know, at this point, I've seen it so consistently. People are saying you're not a Democrat. Mm-hmm. People are saying you should leave the party. But I want to stay on 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 the Russia piece, right? Um, part of the accusation has been that you may not want Russian support. You may not be actively seeking Russian support, but you're getting it because they want to see you blow up the system, right? Is that, is that something, how do you feel about that? And you've never openly said, I don't want their support. I don't want, I have said that before and I'll say it again. Please, please. I don't want any support or intervention of any form, whether it be from Russia or any other foreign country. That's That's not healthy for for our democracy. Uh, But I want to, I want to bring us back to kind of the main issue here which, which uh, I think people are using this all this stuff about Russia and foreign agent as as a distraction around the actual message that I'm delivering that I've right. been consistent on right. all along, not only in my presidential campaign, but throughout the time that I've been in Congress. It's one of the main reasons I ran for Congress right. in the first place. And so many of these people, uh, to include Hillary Clinton and, and her kind of proxies, people like Neera Tandon and others, uh, they resort to smear tactics and name calling and baseless accusations because they refuse to debate me on the substance of the policy changes that I'm talking about, about why we need to get away from the Hillary Clinton legacy of, of foreign policy that I feel has been terribly destructive yeah. and instead move in a direction that's actually in the best interest of our country, of our national security, of our troops. And by the way, would provide us the opportunity to lead and be a force for good in the world. So I think because because we've known each other and because we have the time here and space yeah. to talk about issues, right? Yeah. We're not going to have to cut to commercial. You know, I think it gives us an opportunity to have a real discussion about this. Like with regard to Putin, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of clearly clear the air. I think Putin is an enemy of our country. I think that the there were not interventions in our elections. They were attacks on our elections. I view them almost as an act of war, right? Do you think Putin is our enemy? Here's why I don't use those words lightly, because if you're saying whether it's Putin or some other leader or some other country is our enemy, then, you know, my soldier hat comes on. Okay, if they are our enemy, then we must go to war to defeat that enemy. And when we're or talking we, or about- we just defend against him, right? Like we, we don't necessarily have to go to war well, with him, Well, I right? mean, like, then, then you're leaving it up to interpretation. I, I think these these words are very dangerous and-, and uh, lead us to a place, especially when we're dealing with a um, nuclear-armed country like Russia, mm-hmm. nuclear-armed country like China, that that if we use words in a careless way, what we're doing is we're escalating tensions that push us closer and closer to a new Cold War with countries that, I mean, we have thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at each other still on hair-trigger alert that could be launched at a moment's notice. But for you, it's it's a strategic way of approaching someone who could potentially do us harm. But I think what folks are looking for, right? And and that's why I want to give you an opportunity to expand on it. You don't think Putin's a good guy. No. Right? And 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 in in the explanation of how you would approach him, <laughs> yeah. you may not call him an enemy, but what would you call him? Well, if we're on look, the battlefield, here's, here's, he's not an, if he's not an enemy, then what is he? There are very clear issues that the United States that we have with Russia. There are very significant issues that we have uh with China. What I am against is pushing us into a nuclear war. 
And I'll tell I you, I'll tell you I why. And I think, I think a lot, I, I think everyone can agree you, with that. I want to keep you focused on it though. But what is Putin, right? <laughs> like in your, un, accepting that you have a different way of categorizing Absolutely. him, right? Absolutely. If we're looking at the battle space, yeah. you're, you're a soldier, I'm a soldier. So let's what look is at he? it. So he, let's look at it. So if, if Putin, we have, ad, we, we, there are issues where we are adversaries. Mm-hmm. But I think there are also issues where we have to de-escalate tensions and say, hey, how do we work in the common interests of our people and of the planet and reduce, for example, reducing tensions that uh, have brought us to this point of being on the brink of nuclear catastrophe. Nuclear strategists are saying we are closer to the brink of nuclear catastrophe than we have been for a long time before. We have to be able to find those areas of common interest uh, and further those interests. Uh we have to stay focused on what's the interest of the American people in the United States as it relates to our elections. I'm very concerned about the threats and the vulnerabilities of whether it's Russia or any other country trying to come in and manipulate our elections. It's why I introduced legislation, the Securing America's Elections Act, because there are still 14 states in our country have no paper record whatsoever of the votes that are cast, meaning that if someone comes in and tries to actually hack into those systems, uh, manipulate what votes are cast for whomever, change the outcome of our elections, then then our democracy is finished. So I, because people I, then will have no faith in the system that their votes are actually being cast and being counted that, that's to ask. form our, our representative democracy. I, I appreciate you expanding on that because I think it needs to be expanded. This is a soundbite world right now, right? And, and on some levels... Are you a casualty of the soundbite world or are you misunderstood or had, had really, right? Like I, 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 cause I've told you sometimes yeah. people say to me, what the hell's up with Tulsi, yeah. right? Why can't she just say Putin's a bad yeah, guy? Look, I Why think can't she just say Putin's an enemy? Because I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what's in the best interest of our country. It might make people happy. It might make them feel better to say things. You've got a good tweet or a good this or that. Uh, I don't give a shit about that. I care about our country. I care about the kinds of policies that lead those in positions of power to put our brothers and sisters in uniform needlessly at risk or put the American people at risk. There are, there are consequences both to the rhetoric that's being used and the decisions that are being made. My fear and my concern is both with Washington today as well as with many of the candidates who are running for president now is that they lack, uh, they lack the kind of understanding and experience in national security and foreign policy. Very quick to send out a tweet, but lacking that experience and understanding necessary to fulfill the job of, yeah. of commander-in-chief on day one. I think yeah. that that's something that sets me apart. I think it does. And I think, you know, I've, uh, I'm going to expand on this in the intro, but you have appealed to many people that are independents. A huge part of our audience, I am an, un- an independent. We are unaffiliated. I think you have huge appeal among independents. I've seen that. You have appeal among Republicans. Megan McCain loves you, right? There's lots of people on the right who, who talk about you. But is is that causing this attack from the democratic party because it's a purity test and you don't pass a purity test. Yeah. You know, I think what it is, is it seems like the Democrats are eating their own, right? Yeah. So, and, but does that include you when, 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 when you, when we all, all of us who want to see Donald Trump lose, yeah, all right. of us, right, Republicans, yeah. Democrats and, and everything in between. Yeah. When we see you all fighting with each other, it looks like to put a military, it looks like friendly fire. So here's, here's where I would say, um, there's a difference between petty squabbles and actually speaking the truth that I believe will help strengthen my party, the Democratic Party, and make it so that our party 
uh, is taken back, taken back from uh, the the corporate influence that pervades our party, taken back from uh, the warmongering influence of the military industrial complex and the kind of leadership that's come from Hillary Clinton and make it once again, the Democratic Party that fights for and champions for peace. What happened to that party? What happened to the party that is the party fighting for working people in this country? That is the party that is leading the charge to protect our planet from the environmental threats that we face. Uh, The current chair of the Democratic Party uh, overturned a decision that was made previously to stop taking fossil fuel corporate money. Now that money is welcome into the Democratic Party that I believe should be once again the party that says, no, we don't want your fossil fuel money. We are fighting for the protection of our planet and will lead with the bold kind of change that we need to see. That's the kind of leadership that I seek to bring to our party. I believe it will strengthen our party. We don't get to that better place unless we're willing to call BS, even if it means it's within our own family. You don't, you don't mm-hmm. get better if you just close your eyes, stick your head in the sand and say, hey, guys, let's just stick together and yeah. hope things are going to get better. Yeah. It's not going to happen. But, but I got to tell you, Tulsi, sometimes I watch on stage and I say, you know what? I wish you guys would take this off stage because Donald Trump cheers when he sees you all ripping each other apart on stage, right? And, and that it, it, we're all t- sometimes we're talking about a difference in strategy, mm-hmm. right? And, and I respect that you look at things strategically and you present a different type of strategy. Yeah. But to build on this, you're, th- and I thank you, the first presidential candidate we've ever had on Angry Americans. And I think a lot of people are going to be hearing from you for the first time. Many of them are here because they're fans of yours or mm-hmm. supporters of yours, or maybe they hate you, right? They're coming for a lot of reasons. Yeah. The, the reality, the likelihood is that you're not going to win the nomination, right? Now it's soon. It's now, too, it's, but, it's early. Okay, Paul. Great. Come on. And, and I'm, I'm going to say this of every candidate, every candidate comes on here. If they're, if they're polling below 10%, look, the jets could win the Super Bowl too, but it's unlikely, right? <laughs> so what I ask you is yeah. in, in the same way I would ask, you know, the general manager of the Jets, what's your long-term strategy? So if you lose the nomination and you want to stay in the Democratic Party, the convention comes up, what are you going to do? For people who do want to support you and they want to say, you know what? She's not going to make it. She's not going to get the nomination, but I want to support her. What comes, you're going to take it all the way to the convention? I am taking it all the way to the convention. And then if you don't get the nomination at the convention, then what? Uh, I mean, come on. You're, you're asking about a hypothetical that who I'm the actually, hell knows actually, what it's going to happen. I'm actually asking you to do military planning, right? Because yeah. you're going to plan for the most dangerous course of action, the mm-hmm. most likely course of action. Yeah. And we scenario plan. That's yeah, what we do absolutely. as military officers. Absolutely. So I, I'm going to push you. I would have a battle plan for if I lose, if I win, if it's somewhere in between. You yeah. must, you could tell me you don't want to share your plan, Yeah. but you do, you must have a plan for what happens if you don't get the nomination at the convention. Well, look, I, I am running to win. You can say I don't have a chance, but a lot of voters might might disagree and do disagree. Uh, I think Jimmy Carter was pulling at one percent at this point, and he was running for president. I mean, no, no disrespect. Went, no, no, I'm no, no. I'm just odds, I'm laying okay? it out. I'm, I'm laying it out. I'm laying uh, it out. It's also in, in part for people who 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 want to know. Oh, she's po- and I'm going to ask this of anybody who comes on here is yeah. who, who's not polling at you know twenty percent or higher. The likelihood is low. Right. Well, here's now, the it thing. It could happen. You could run the t- you could run the table. You could win the nomination. You come out from behind. But if not, those people who want to give you five bucks or want to donate, mm-hmm. I think they want to know what happens afterward. The polls, the national polls that are coming out over and over again, are showing who has the most national name recognition. That even as these polls are coming out, they're making it sound like well, the election will be held tomorrow. When you actually dig down into the polls. 
the majority of people are saying they still have not made up their minds and B, that even if they're saying they're going to support one of the top three candidates today, I think one of the polls showed 80% of those people said they could easily be convinced otherwise. So our challenge and opportunity is getting better known, getting in front Mm -hmm. of people, sharing Mm -hmm. with them my experience and leadership and what I seek to bring to this job as commander in chief. And uh, I think there's there's a lot of precedence that shows folks who are polling where we're polling now have staged a comeback and have gone through and done very well or won the nomination. Uh, there could be any number of outcomes. I will take this all the way to the convention uh, and we will execute from there based on on what happens. My goal and my interest, as you know very well, is to to serve my country in whatever way that I feel I can best do so. So if it works out that I'm not the Democratic nominee, then I'll continue to find a way to to best serve our country. And does that mean definitely staying in the Democratic Party? Yes. So you will not leave and run as a third party candidate not. or as an independent? No. You know, there's a lot of people who are disappointed to hear that. A lot of independents perhaps, and unaffiliated. Perhaps, right? perhaps. I've been asked this question a ton of times over the last several months. Yeah. Uh, again, something that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton said that uh, absolutely baseless. And, and if she'd been listening, she would have known. Yeah. Um, no, my, my interest and goal is not to just uh, leave the party and run separately. As I've said, my goal is to actually strengthen mm-hmm. our party. I think we can and we must do so much better for Democrats and for the country. And in whatever capacity I'm in, I'm going to continue to try to and, find ways to and, do that. And I, I say that as someone like many Americans who is sick and tired of the parties. And, and sick and tired of the negative influence they have, the divisive influence they have. 40% of this country is made up of independents and unaffiliated. And if Howard Schultz is, is all we got, you know, we're, we're disappointed. But those independents are going to have to choose. And if they're planning for the long term, mm-hmm. right? There, I think there is a question of who will become the legacy of the independents, who will be the new independents, and who will be the new Democratic Party. I mean, yeah. if you're staying in the party you're tuning up for fights for the next 30 years, right? Because the Democratic Party is going more and more left and people are viewing, it's, you're fascinating, Tulsi, in that you're, you're not really more of the center, right? A lot of your policies are, are Yeah, I don't fit in left. any of the boxes. No, but you know, <laughs> you're viewed as someone who is a counter to the left in part because of your national security background. So when I, every guest I talk to, I, I consider an iconic, important or inspiring and or inspiring American. And, and you're in that category, I think, unequivocally. And, and it's also important to note, people don't know, you are the first female combat veteran in American history to run for president. Yeah. And I talked to you about this a bit on the radio, but I want to give you a chance to talk about what that means yeah. beyond the politics, beyond the party, even beyond Tulsi. Yeah. Right. Like, what does that mean for America, for little boys and girls growing up in this country to see you up on that stage and to hear you running for president, you know, what in, inside your, your, your heart and your spirit, you talk about the Aloha spirit. Yeah. Like, what does that mean for you? And what does it mean for our country? Oh, well, I just tell you in, in, uh, in a deeply personal way, uh, some of the messages and, and emails or, or DMs on Twitter or Instagram that I get from other veterans or people who are still currently serving, people I've never met in my life, uh, and this happens almost every day, um, there's no greater compliment to a soldier than for someone to say, if I had to have someone in my foxhole, I would choose you. Uh, and I hear from people who say that, that uh, they would be honored to serve under my command as commander-in-chief. Uh, as as a soldier, you know, that is the greatest possible yeah. um, words you could hear uh, from a fellow service member. 
um, you know, we, we were in Iowa two nights ago and, uh, there was a woman who brought her two little girls to our town hall and going through the Q and a and asking questions and, uh, little girl, I think she was probably maybe six, six or seven years old. Her name was Beatrice. And so she got the microphone and she said, I want to know what you're going to do as president for us kids. <laughs> and I just, you know, it's, it's so cool to be able to have these conversations and to see from little Beatrice and so many others um, that they matter, that they are part of this conversation, that we are doing this for them and for our future and that they are our future. Um, we were in South Carolina a couple of weeks ago, stopped in a little town, um, gosh, I don't remember the name of the town right now, but uh, Orangeburg, it was Orangeburg. And we stopped and we picked up some drinks from the grocery store. And there was a 17 year old uh, high school girl working the cash register. And I introduced myself. She's like, what? You're running for president? I never heard of you. <laughs> <laughs> and so we just started talking and she's like, you the only woman running for president? I said, nope. There's a few of us actually. She's like, yeah. man, that's so cool. Uh, she said, I'm going to run for president one day. I just decided right here, right now. And, you know, 17-year-old black girl in South Carolina, just having that little moment with her, she's like, yeah, what's the big deal? I can do what you're doing and I will. Mm. And uh, that kind of impact, um, I think, is, is, is incredible for our country about what's happening here, how we're breaking down barriers, opening doors, and that we're seeing more and more veterans across party lines stepping up and saying, hey... I am bringing an experience that is important to our country and that um, it is an incredible way to continue that service. Mm. I think a lot, you know, a lot of folks who don't know you or don't know Hawaii, you know, they think Aloha and maybe they think soft, mm -hmm. but people who know people of Hawaii and know the tradition of military service and know, you know, the, the story of Senator Akaka and Senator Enui and yes. others know that Aloha is also a fighting spirit and, you know, a, a pride and a, and a take no shit kind of attitude. And yep. I think people saw that in the debate when I, I tweeted that you Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, mm. right. In the same way she came at Biden and there was a, you know, this, this fight. Okay. I call it a fight. People ask, it was a fight. It looked like a fight. Right. And, and you, you know, got into a battle with Kamala Harris, but you showed uh, a fighting spirit. And, and I think that is, that is different and, and that, especially in the democratic party. Uh, and it's tied back to, I know your roots and your military service, but the question I'm, I'm really been dying to ask you, you know, you've spoken about what you call regime change wars mm -hmm. and you've been very critical of Syria and others. You're still in the national guard. Yeah. If you get deployed to fight in a regime change war, will you go? That's a good question. That's a good question. Um, I think the answer is yes. Uh, you know, our responsibility, both as officers and soldiers, is to obey legal orders. So that's what I would look for first. Is this a, a legal order coming from the president and commander-in-chief? Yeah. Uh, and if the the answer is no to that, then uh, then I I think the answer to your question would be different. Uh, this This comes back to why it's so important that we have... Uh, veterans' voices serving in leadership in our country uh, because we have been through and understand the cost and consequences of those decisions that are made in the Oval Office as well as in Congress. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I worked with uh, 
uh, now passed away, but Congressman Walter Jones on introducing legislation called the No More Presidential Wars Act, Mm -hmm. because our Constitution mandates that Congress be the body that declares war. Congress has ceded that responsibility for so long, uh, failing to take action when action was necessary, and the executive branch has taken advantage of that and abused that power, uh, claiming almost with, you know, uh, uh, without exception, saying, well, you know, under Article 2, I can do whatever I want. Hmm. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. And it's our men and women in uniform that pay the price. But you're this, this contrast, right, of the warrior peacemaker. You're the peace candidate. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, you're, I'm a realist. I think yeah. the, the I think not that, a pacifist. Not a pacifist. Right. No, I think it's it's being a realist about uh, the world that we live in, uh, the threats that exist to our country, and the reason look why why we uh, why we serve in the military. I enlisted, motivated by what happened on 9/11, to go after the evil that visited us on that day and defeat it. Um, Unfortunately, sometimes war is necessary to protect the safety and security of the American people. But what I am strongly against and what I have have been and continue to be fighting for is to stop needlessly sending our brothers and sisters to go and fight in wars, toppling dictators uh, that actually undermine our national security and and strengthen terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda and actually dishonor the great sacrifices that are made both by our servicemen and women and their families. So, you know, the, the, the regime change war term is one that you use a lot. Right. And so I, you know, again, I want to, I want to push this and understand because you are also only three combat veterans are running for president. It's Joe Sestak, Pete Buttigieg and you. That's right. Right. You're the only one that's still in. They're out. Right. I don't think Buttigieg is in the IRR. I think Sestak is retired. Oh yeah, you're right. Right. So you're still you That's still correct. go to drill. That's right. Right. You you train with a unit, yep. you wear the uniform, you yep. know, you leave Congress. Like there are a couple members of Congress that do it. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a unusual thing to do. It's a hard thing. I think Lindsey Graham deployed for a couple weeks at at one point a couple of years ago. It, yeah. it happens, right? But it's a very unusual and unique position to, to be in. But when you talk about regime change wars, how far does it go? Because this is where I want to give you a chance to talk about it. Sure. If if Hitler is a regime, would you support the overthrow of Hitler? Uh, I don't. I don't think that comparing World War II to regime change war like those we've seen in Iraq is is uh, an adequate or an apples to apples comparison. It's not. I know it's not, but it's I also I want to give an example of to, to to see to understand your yeah, thinking sure. and to give you a chance to explain how far does it go? Yeah, right? because sometimes the way the regime change war terminology has been used is also uh, in with respect to, to bad actors who are massacring their people. Absolutely. And the, the criticism you get that I see more than anything else is about Assad and about Syria. And mm-hmm. people ask, why did she meet with Assad? Why won't she call Assad a war criminal? Right. So I, I, it's, it's intertwined. I don't want to just give you hypotheticals about Hitler, Yeah. but you know, if, if I want to see how far does your, philosophy or your values extend. Yeah. Uh, Well, first of all, I think it's important that we begin by asking a couple of important questions. What is our objective? Basic question that we've got to ask and answer before executing any kind of military operation. Uh, Second, does that objective best serve the interests of the American people and our national security interests? Uh, Third, when we're looking at issues or situations like those you're talking about 
uh, humanitarian disasters, brutal dictator causing great harm and suffering for their own people. Will our action uh, help the people in these countries or will it make things worse? Uh, We have seen time and time again, not only throughout our lifetimes, but going back farther in, in even farther back in the Middle East, in Central America and South America, how uh, these, these regime change wars, wars or efforts to topple dictators in other countries have often been waged, most often waged actually, in the guise of humanitarianism, when in fact those actions have made the lives worse off for the people in those countries. Yeah. But if we can Whether stop, it, if we can stop a genocide or destruction, just to put a point on it, right. And this, you and I don't agree on a lot of things. We agree on a lot of things, but this is one that's hard for me to understand. Right. Can, or if, if the goal is to stop a genocide and it's being waged by a regime, mm-hmm. is that not an exception to your rule? Well, you, you have to, you have to, will, will overthrowing that regime actually stop a genocide? That's the, that's it, that's the first. Say, no, that, that's an important let's question. Let's say it does. Let's so say this it does. is this has been the whole issue. Is is since two thousand eleven? If we can, if we can throw out Assad, since, and we can stop a genocide and stop okay, war but crimes. That's, that's the question here. Since two thousand eleven, our country has been waging a regime change war using many different tactics uh, to be able to do so. First, it was uh, through covert means. Uh, this has all been published publicly. CIA uh, arming and equipping terrorist groups like Al Qaeda. And other jihadist groups, because in Syria, they have been and and continue to be the most uh, powerful and effective ground force fighting to overthrow the government, saying, all right, we're just going to help you guys. You guys go in and overthrow the government. Uh, Then there's there's these draconian sanctions that have been in place and escalated in the last several years. Uh, similar to those that that Saudi Arabia has on um, the people in Yemen, causing a lot of hardship and suffering, not for the the Syrian government, but for the people, completely crippling uh, any access to economic um, uh, benefit, f- food, clean water, medicine. The Syrian people are the ones who are suffering the most from that. This is basically like a modern day siege war tactic. Uh, number three if you look at, okay, so we want to go and overthrow a brutal dictator to be able to help the people in his country. Well, the people are suffering more as a result of the tactics that we are using. And by the way, uh, debatable, we're debating the cause. Well, on okay. Some level, so right? if you look like, at fine, okay, we, let's we say we're successful. No fly zone. No, fly no, no, zone. no, no. Let's, let's just protect. finish this one. Let's ahead, finish this ahead, one. Go ahead, please. So overthrow Assad. Let's say all of this works. Assad is overthrown. Who is the most, uh, the, the most powerful and effective force on the ground in Syria that will fill that vacuum and take over that leadership. It's not going to be some puppet government that we, the United States, choose. Uh, it will be the most powerful force on the ground, and that is a jihadist force right now of Al Qaeda right, and other terrorist groups. Is there not a scenario where if you are commander in chief, you can organize a global force for good that goes in and and comes in after Assad? Can you be the president that creates a legitimate UN army? that goes in there and knocks out Assad and sets up stability and is peaceful and gets the water running and all of that. I mean, there, no. there has to, no. no, there's just no scenario under the sun where no, it because, could ever work and, out. And the reason why I say that with such confidence is because it has been tried and failed over and yeah. over and over and over and over again, that if you have outside forces coming in and trying to dictate to a people who their leader should or should not be and what kinds of changes they should or should not have, what kind of democracy or constitution they should not should or should not have, it doesn't work. 
it is terrible and it is heartbreaking the, to see what's happening I, there. I, I am, Ultimately, it is the people of Syria who will be the ones who make that determination about what kinds of changes they want to see. Uh, and, and I've met, I met when I was in Syria with the, no one likes to talk about this. Yes, I met with Assad. I met with the political opposition who have been fighting from day one to try to get him out of office. The difference is these are people who are fighting for a political revolution, fighting yeah. to strengthen their democracy, fighting to bring about very specific constitutional reforms that will actually reflect the, the desires of the Syrian people. They, they hate the fact that the United States, Saudi Arabia, uh, France, uh, Qatar, and all these other countries are coming in and intervening in their business and and turning what was the beginning of a political revolution into an all out war. The, 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 the thing I want to I want to try to give you a real opportunity to expand on is like you, you won't knock out Assad, right? You, it's you not know, our place. Okay, fair. it has nothing to do right. with get, like get, there, there's no affinity respect, or affection or anything that's there. Your position My point that. is that that we, we want, should not be going in and trying I, to. I respect that. If you're elected president, you're going to go meet with Assad. If there is an objective of national security, our national security, or the objective of peace, well, you'll determine the objective. You'll be the commander in chief. Exactly. So, so, so look, meeting for the sake of a meeting is 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 ridiculous. But you already met with him when you weren't president. But now, if, if you're president. I would meet with Assad. I would meet with Kim Jong-un. I would meet with Putin. I would meet with Xi Jinping. I would meet with those necessary to pursue the interests of our country, the American people, our national security, and the interests of peace, especially if it means taking those meetings will save the lives of Americans and will prevent us from continuing to needlessly lose more of our men and women in uniform in these ridiculous regime change wars. The, the part that, that always rattles around in my head, Tulsi, is, is you object to regime change wars, but you want to overthrow Trump. <laughs> and, 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 and your attack on Hillary was kind of like labeling her a regime, How, right? Like the, no, when you call no. her a so warmonger, so we got to get rid of Hillary This is our Clinton. country. Yeah. This yeah. is exactly what a I, democracy is like about. inconsistency to oh, me, right? It shouldn't, Paul. It's because it what's going to happen to the Democratic Party if you knock out Hillary Clinton? <laughs> it's going to be chaos. I will lead the Democratic Trump, Party. It's going to be chaos. Like, not even, not even Tulsi Gabbard <laughs> is going to be able to pick this shit up after Trump is gone, no matter who wins, right? Uh, wholeheartedly so, disagree with your premise. Uh I will be worried for our democracy if we are not doing all that we can to bring about positive change in our own government where our country has gone wrong so many times in the past. And this is not only with, with conventional tactical warfare and trying to overthrow other countries' governments. It's been using all the different tools to intervene and get in other countries' business and tell them how they should live their lives or what they should do, just like we do not want Russia or it, China yeah. or any other country it, right? coming like, in and telling us, well, we think... We think this person should lead your country. We think this is what you I get, should do. I get the we shouldn't be doing I, it to I, other countries. I get the philosophy, right? And on some levels, I think folks may feel like we heard this from Bernie Sanders, right? And it was different. He was a socialist. He wasn't a veteran. He wasn't serving in the National Guard. So I, I think you, you said earlier that you're a realist. Yeah. But on some levels, you could argue this is not a realistic way to approach these situations. Mm. So that's where mm. I, that's where I, I, I find myself conflicted in I, understanding your position. I, I think it's it's the most realistic approach. It's actually the most pragmatic approach that takes I lessons lessons from uh, takes lessons from history. And that's that's where I look to. These aren't just, you know, uh, some newfangled ideas I've come up with on my own. It's really looking back to what the cost and consequence has been 
really for decades, uh, going back to the overthrow of the, the, the queen of Hawaii. I got it. I mean, it's it, it, just to extend this and then we'll shift to another topic because you've been very gracious in, in going through this with me. And I really wanted to have a discussion yeah, about no, it it's because good. I feel like it doesn't happen, Tulsi. Yeah. I feel like you don't get a chance to really expand upon this. And on some levels, you don't get pushed like because some folks just defer to you or you, know, you don't get a chance on the stage. So sure. I think it's important for people to understand that your ideas... Uh, are evolved. You've thought them through. They're not rash, and they're principled. You have you have a worldview that that a lot of people believe in and and follow. So I think it's especially interesting for us as combat vets to scenario it out. Yeah. Right. And see how far it can go yeah. and what happens in a real world dynamic. Yeah. In, yeah. Environment, no, absolutely. Right. And I think this is um, this whole topic is is one and that you mentioned this and this is what we're seeing in our um, in our town halls and our rallies and campaign gatherings across the country is that we have Democrats, independents, libertarians and Republicans coming and supporting my candidacy, uh, recognizing, hey, we disagree with you, Tulsi, on, you know, maybe issues like A through X, but on this issue related to foreign policy and the cost of war, it is one that the vast majority of Americans are actually coming together around recognizing, hey, what we've been through has cost us not only in American lives, not only in the lives of the people in the countries where we've waged these wars, but tying it back directly to the challenges we're facing here at home. How, how since 9-11 alone, we've seen over $6 trillion uh, waged on, on these wars, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Afghanistan. And meanwhile, we are told time and again, there's not enough money to make sure our teachers are paid to, mm-hmm. to teach our kids, mm-hmm. not enough money to ensure that every single American gets quality health care when they need it, not enough money to invest in infrastructure, basic infrastructure needs, clean water to drink. There are so many things that we need to be focused on and addressing here at home that require resources. And this is why our the cost of war is is central and directly connected to every other issue that we I, and, face. And I respect your consistency. On some levels, you know, your approach to Assad is not dissimilar from your approach to Tucker Carlson, right? Like some people will say, don't go on Tucker Carlson's show. He's an asshole. He's a racist. He's terrible for America. I imagine your argument would be, I want to discuss this with his audience. That's exactly right. right. But that's so exactly who's a bigger right. because, asshole? Who's well, a bigger asshole, Assad or Tucker Carlson? That's, I'm not even going to go there. I am not even going to touch that. <laughs> but going, you understand where going, I'm coming from, right? Because well, it's, yeah, it's a similar strategy. Is, You're consi- is, I'm actually giving you credit for being consistent, right? Like some people would say, <laughs> don't go to Fox, right? A lot of Democrats are super pissed at you because you go on Tucker Carlson mm-hmm. instead of going on Rachel Maddow. But there's a strategy I would there. Love, I've, I would love for Rachel Maddow to have me on her show. I'm Maybe sure you can ask will. her next time. I'm I would sure love she, to go I'm on sure her show. Will. I'm sure she will. Um, I, I think I it's think important that, that I, am, I am asking the American people for the opportunity to serve and lead them as their president, yeah. not just Democrats, not just people who agree with me, but all Americans. And guess what? There's a significant uh, chunk of Americans who watch Fox News every yeah, single day. So I go on Fox, I get the same shit for going on Fox. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, local news, whatever it yeah, is, I yeah. think it's important to be able to connect with and to deliver my message about what I hope to do for this country. Yeah, and and so I want to be mindful of your time. You've got to go to other events. Can I ask you a couple of quick questions that we ask of every guest? All right. You've kind of gotten into it, but Tulsi Gabbard, what makes you angry? <sighs> What makes me most angry uh, are leaders in our country who 
do not take seriously the oath that we all take when we are sworn into office to protect and defend our constitution and our country and instead put their own interests, whether they be partisan interests or financial interests or whatever it may be, putting their own selfish interests ahead of the interests of the country. If that's what you're into, don't run for office because we need leaders who are focused with a laser-like fashion on how we together, Democrats, Republicans, independents, can best serve the interests of the people and of our country. And, you know, this show is about understanding that people have a right to be angry. And there's a righteousness to it. And it's the same anger that drove the civil rights movement, that drives people to get involved in politics, right? That that drives people, I believe, in positive directions if it's channeled properly. And so there's a lot of people who look to you as someone who represents that righteous anger and is trying to promote positive change. But running for office is also hard as hell. Like I've seen you go through this. You're lucky to have your sister alongside you. I can't think of anybody better I would want in my foxhole than, than my brother. Um, the other question we ask of, of every guest is, you know, especially fo- folks who are listening, maybe they're, they're having a hard time. You meet a lot of people around the world who are having a hard time, who are looking for inspiration or just perspective. Yeah. So like beyond the politics, not like a political answer, yeah. but Tulsi Gabbard at your core, what makes you happy? Um, and this is, this is not, this is the, this is the honest to God truth. What makes me happy is when I can be in a place where I'm, I am being of service to others where I'm having a positive impact uh, for other people in their lives. It's something that I experienced just when I was young, when I was a kid growing up in Hawaii, uh, surfing, love the ocean. Uh, uh, surfing really hiking. makes you happy. I mean, surfing, right? I have a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Surfing makes me happy. But but as a kid surfing, like I would get pissed off when I would see a whole bunch of trash on the beach and people just saying like, I don't care about the, I don't care about our playground, our home. And so getting my friends and going, picking up trash on the weekends, clean up the beach, like that was like, wow, like I'm feeling like I, I can actually make a difference here. And uh, that that's what has been and continues to motivate me to go through those tough days, to, to run through those obstacles um, no matter what, because ultimately it's, it's not about me. Mm. When you're growing up in Hawaii, um, surfing and planting those seeds of activism, cleaning up your beach, cleaning up your, your area, Tulsi Gabbard, what was your first car? My first car was a uh, old beat up Toyota Camry uh, that lasted less than a year before the transmission blew. <laughs> I grew up doing martial arts and I uh, was training at the, as a teenager like four hours a day in Brazilian capoeira martial arts. And so I was saving up my money. Like I wanted to go and, and like train for a month in Brazil uh, on, on capoeira martial arts. And then I uh, was faced with the decision of doing the responsible thing and getting a car so I could <laughs> drive to work and school or go to Brazil. And, and my mother told me later she was so afraid that if I went, I would never come home. <laughs> uh, I did the responsible thing, bought a shitty car that broke down on me less than a year later and, uh, and still to this day have never made it to Brazil. What color was the car? It was light blue. Um, yeah, I won't say who sold it to me, but it's somebody who's close to me who said it was a great deal. It'd be a great car. And then the transmission blew and, and, and I drive a stick still now as a result. Driving a stick in Hawaii has got to be tough. Uh, traffic. Yeah. Yeah, Traffic, hills, mountains, right? Like it's, 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 and, and you've never still been, still never been to Brazil. I sold my, uh, drum set. 
to buy my first car. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yep. That's, and, that seems a very adult-like decision. No, it was like, <laughs> it was also like my family was so pissed about the drums. They were so oh, ready to no. have me out of the house. Oh, okay. But it was the only thing I owned of any significant value yeah. was this drum set. Yeah. So it was way before. I, I think I bought the car for like 1200 bucks. Wow. So maybe I should have expected it to break down. I don't know. No. And, <laughs> and, okay. And, and, um, Look, I want to give you one one chance to talk about something else too. You've been intrepid on veterans issues. So many veterans yeah. issues. You were in New York today. You met with 9-11 first responders. We've covered that issue a lot on this show. We yeah. had Rob Sarah. We've had uh, a tremendous support across this community for the Victims Compensation Fund extension uh, and and many other you know pushes to to connect with and support people. And you've also been an advocate for burn pits, which I try to explain to civilians is almost like 9-11 health impacts for, for veterans, right? We were all overseas. We breathed in a bunch of shit. And now a lot of people are getting sick. And it could be our generation's Agent Orange. But can you talk a little bit about... Um, who you met with today and what you did in New York? Yeah, we met with, um, we met with, uh, the family members of, of, uh, three people who were, um, killed in that attack. One was a first responder, uh, New York city fire chief, uh, who survived the first round and went back to help more people and, and, uh, was killed then on nine 11. I think, you know, who I'm talking about a guy named Chris, who is now, uh, serving in the fire department here, uh, as well as two other family members um, and uh, some former law enforcement officers who have been working around trying to bring justice uh, for those families who were killed on that day and the first responders who've lost their lives since. Um, there were two main things that we talked about is is the need for these family members to gain closure by getting access to the information necessary to be able to continue their lawsuit uh, against Saudi Arabia. And number two, how these families and first responders are rallying around support for burn pits, uh, recognizing that uh, this is the Agent Orange of our generation and that so many veterans, like many of the first responders, like yourself, have have been exposed to incredible toxic chemicals of which you can't even begin to put together what they all are and are experiencing devastating health consequences, not just respiratory, but many others, early stage cancers and other things um, that are taking the lives of our uh, our brothers and sisters in uniform. So these are two major areas that I'm I'm looking forward to continue to work with them on uh, uh, making progress on and addressing. Would you ever be VA secretary? Would you ever take the job of VA secretary? Because that makes I would you know, I would consider it. It's as complicated as Syria. I mean, it's very very difficult. I know it's a vexing bureaucratic problem, and and, and, and it re- it requires strong leadership. Yeah, and the support of an administration who will back the kind of serious change that the VA needs. But would you do the job if, if down the road someone else is president and you were asked, have you ever thought about running the VA? I, I'd consider it, again, looking at the circumstances. I wouldn't take a job if, if my hands were tied behind my back. Okay. But I think having someone at the head of the VA who is a veteran, who understands uh, in a deeply personal way the serious problems and can be the kind of advocate that veterans need to get through the red tape and the bureaucracy to actually just get shit done, I think is, is necessary. Absolutely. And there's never been a female VA secretary. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's interesting. It never has been. So wow. if it's you or someone else, it will be the first. Yeah. And especially with that hugely, uh, that, that 
the biggest, uh, the fastest growing percentage of the population is female veterans, as you know. Yeah. Um, but continue to be woefully underserved. And you've done so much to change uh, the way people understand what service is about, what, uh, what, what patriotism is about. Um, and I know that I am extremely grateful for you. You've given us a lot of time. Thank and you've you. been great in tangling with me on some of these issues that um, I think are important. Like what you've always shown me is that we can disagree. We can still work together. Yeah. Right. And that's really important right now, despite your you know, it really epic is. clash with Hillary Clinton right now. For the most part, your career has been about crossing lines to the point where you've got a lot of knives in your back. We're, we're dem- yeah. I remember, you know, a lot of Democrats said they would not work with a Republican on some of the issues we brought forward. Yeah. And Republicans said the same thing. But I, I really think it's a testament to your to your, uh, your your dedication to the country and especially to the veterans community that you were willing to take those shots at times so that we could get shit done. Yeah. Um, and I have to one last point in the interview. I have to do the giving of the gifts. Um, I, is this Aloha Spirit to give gifts? Yeah, sure. Okay, cool. So you have wow. three different components. Okay. Um, and it's I can hold Spoken your mic. Spoken like it a it true officer. Three different components. Three different components. Okay. The first is American made. <laughs> And that is um, Angry American Swag. Nice. I'm going to, can I hold your mic so I can pick it up? Thanks. I'll hold your mic. There we go. See? Um, So that is made by veterans at Oscar Mike, veteran-owned, American-made company. Very cool. So you've got that and it's comfortable. You can wear it next time you're practicing Miss Martial Arts, getting ready for your next Joe Rogan appearance. Um, And then, and then uh, we talked about this earlier. You saw that Rogan had Snowden on today. Yeah, I I actually am looking forward to watching that. That should be interesting. And I know this interview is long, but it's a third of the length of talking to Joe Rogan. Are you serious? Yeah, you did like three hours with oh, Rogan. Oh, yeah. I, I I thought the Snowden one, someone said it was extremely long. Oh, I think it's about three hours. Yeah, but your interview with Rogan was long. Like I think I drove it was... <laughs> somewhere and back and I was still, my wife is like, is Tulsi still talking? I'm like, yeah, she's on Rogan, man. <laughs> Rogan, like, do you, you don't take any breaks yeah, at Rogan either? No, you don't go to the bathroom no, or like go get a drink three nothing. hours straight no, in that Rogan no, world? No. That's nuts. Yeah, okay, but anyway. Cool Moving along through the gifts, right. then you also have a choice to make. Every guest has been asked. This so the show started around Easter. Okay, there are peeps in there, and there are <laughs> there are blue, yellow, and pink. And the question is, if you have to choose one color, would you choose yellow, pink, or blue, and why? Um, blue. It's just one of my favorite colors. It's a, it's a great answer. You yeah. probably don't eat peeps, right? I don't. Yeah, I figure. And you also don't drink whiskey, but <laughs> which is component number three. Yes. So we each we always give a guest an American-made whiskey, and this is a repeat. I did it Parts last of week. Oak Militia. But it's also Fort Hamilton whiskey, uh-huh. and it's named after and inspired by Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn. Yeah. And it's a rye whiskey, which is an old whiskey that was made often in, in New York, especially before Prohibition. But uh, it's it's got a military-inspired story. And although you don't drink, maybe you can give it to someone else as a gift. You can give it Thank to your you. sister. I don't know if she drinks. But Thank you. <laughs> anyone else around you over the last couple of weeks as you've been taking some shots may need a drink so they can enjoy <laughs> enjoy that. Thank you. But, this is incredibly kind. And you know. uh, it's great to see you always and appreciate uh, you know just, just the great work that you've been doing over the years. And I know the work that you're continuing to do. You're an incredible patriot. Tulsi. And, and I think that people, you're redefining patriotism and that's uncomfortable for some people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I that's think okay, many though. of us got our back up in the last couple of weeks when, 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 uh, folks attack your patriotism. Yeah. Because patriotism comes in many forms and it's not always conventional, but you've been consistent in your dedication to make this country better. And, and I really am always consistently inspired by your example. 
just how often you're getting up there and and taking swings and work. It's hard fucking work. It really (laughs) is. And people don't appreciate that. Um, and and I think especially, you know, the path you've chosen has been, um, an unconventional one, but it's really been inspiring to watch. And I talk about every guest shaping, you know, the past, the present and the future of this country. And no matter what happens in 2020, you're definitely going to be shaping the future of this country. I'm very grateful that you took so much time to talk to me and to share your your thoughts with the audience. It's always good to see you. You got a lot of fans out there now. And Thank when, you, Paul. Next, are you gonna ever? Can you fight? Like, would you actually fight somebody <laughs> for charity? Can I we, would. Yeah. Yeah. Tucker Carlson. Uh, maybe <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe Joe Rogan can set it up. We've talked about uh, Chris Cuomo and I talked about fighting uh, Hannity and and Tucker Carlson for charity. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, maybe I have to go in the middle because I'm not even a Democrat, but I just would love to jump in the ring with those guys <laughs> but I, i'm gonna ditch cuomo ask you to be my tag team partner i'm in man in I'm but for thank, a good cause yeah. for a good cause thank you for joining us <laughs> thank, in you, America. thank you for coming to new york we thank appreciate you. you so much it's good to ladies see you. and gentlemen tulsi gabbard live from new york whether you live in hawaii or florida or shit even moscow everybody wants to be comfortable and have some good gear And I've told you a lot about, but I encourage you to check out Oscar Mike. Oscar Mike is a kick-ass, veteran-owned, and American-made lifestyle apparel brand that exists to support veterans. And they create inspiring t-shirts, hats, wristbands, all kinds of cool gear that uh, can keep you looking fresh, whether you're doing mixed martial arts like Tulsi Gabbard, or you're doing push-ups like Chris Cuomo, or you're just on a book tour like Rachel Maddow, any of the people we've had on this show can rock and do rock Oscar Mike gear. They have awesome clothes that are affordable. As I mentioned, sweatshirts, hats, even yoga gear. Uh, They've got yoga capris. They've got the George Washington tee that I've told you about and that I love that says, are you a revolutionary? Of course you are. No one will ever think otherwise when you're wearing this modern day depiction of the original revolutionary, the original angry American, George Washington. It's always printed on ultra soft, lightweight t-shirts, always made in the USA, American flag on the sleeve, and Oscar Mike on the sleeve. But Oscar Mike has stuff for everyone. I encourage you to check out oscarmike.org. That's oscarmike.org. Veterans Day is coming up in a couple weeks. So if you're a veteran, definitely check out some Oscar Mike gear that you can rock during Veterans Day or Veterans Month. If you know a veteran, you can get him a couple shirts there and send him out. Or if you just want to support veterans, Veterans Day is coming up, but Oscar Mike helps us make every day Veterans Day. Check them out. OscarMike.org. All right. You know the deal. And if you don't, here it is. It's time to turn that anger, frustration, sadness, agony, inspiration, whatever you're feeling into positive impact. It's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every show, I offer you a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action, a positive action that shows that angry Americans, like all of us, can also be impactful Americans. It's an action that will channel your energy, make you feel good, and make a difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes, integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. In times like these, we all need inspiration. We all need positive role models. And NBA legend Shaquille O'Neal has always been one. And especially now. 
There's nothing that Shaq can't do. But is there one thing in 2020 that you're putting on your vision board? I'm going to make people smile more. I'm going to take care of people I don't know. Just make their day. Shaq's always been a helper. He's always been a leader. He's always been looking out for others. And in times like these, we need leaders who look out for others. And especially those who set the example. And Congressman Elijah Cummings was one of those leaders. It's a very simple poem, but it's one that I live by. It says, I only have a minute, 60 seconds in it, forced upon me. I did not choose it, but I know that I must use it, give account if I abuse it, suffer if I lose it. Only a tiny little minute, but eternity is in it. And so I join you as we move forward to uplift not only the nation, but the world. May God bless you all, and may God bless America. Maryland Representative Elijah Cummings was a sharecropper's son who rose to become a civil rights champion and chairman of one of the most powerful committees leading the impeachment of Donald Trump. He died this week of complications from long-standing health problems at the age of 68. Cummings was a powerful orator and leader who advocated for poor people in his black majority district, but also the well-to-do suburbs. As chairman of the House Oversight and Reform Committee, he led investigations of the president's government dealings, including probes this year relating to Trump's family members serving in the White House. Cummings battled Trump this summer when Trump came after Baltimore, and he called Baltimore a rodent-infested mess where no human being would want to live. It got widespread condemnation from Democrats, and Elijah Cummings punched back, like he always did. Representative Elijah Cummings will lie in state at the National Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol this week, joining a distinguished list of people who to receive the honor. At his funeral, former Presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton will deliver remarks. And there aren't complete records of Capitol funeral ceremonies, but it looks like Cummings will be the first African-American lawmaker in history to lie in state in the Capitol. No African-Americans have lain in state in the rotunda, and only two have laid there in honor. Rosa Parks in 2005, and Officer Jacob Joseph Chestnut, a Capitol police officer killed in the line of duty in 1998. Instead of flowers, the Cummings family has requested that donations be made to the Elijah Cummings Youth Program, Morgan State University, or Howard University. So here's how you can be a helper. Check out the Elijah Cummings Youth Program. The website's ecyp.org. That's Echo Charlie Yankee Papa.org. The Elijah Cummings Youth Program. They invest in promising teens from Maryland's 7th Congressional District and prepare them to serve as open minded leaders with skills, community ties, and global exposure critical to being successful in a diverse society. Their efforts are infused with the spirit of bridge building exemplified by the long relationship between Congressman Cummins and the Baltimore Jewish community. They have a vision. It's of a world guided by ambassadors of cross-cultural relations who demand high expectations of themselves and are committed to working for a better tomorrow. So support the Elijah Cummins Youth Program. Honor the memory of Elijah Cummins by being like him and by empowering other young people to do the same. If you can't donate, find a youth program in your area and donate your time or energy 
to support. Be informed and be inspired and be like Elijah Cummins. Be a helper. And if you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find me on social media and use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let us know. Don't just be angry, be active. All right, y'all. Big thanks to a few folks that helped make this really important newsmaking episode happen. First off, big thanks to Tulsi Gabbard and her entire team uh, on the campaign for making this happen. She had a lot going on, and especially to her sister, Vindraven, who was there with her and made it all happen. And go to angryamericans.us for the full video of my interview with Tulsi Gabbard. It's at a new location. It was kind of an undisclosed location. But big thanks to the awesome team at Matador Content. They helped make it happen. Jay Peterson, Jack Turner, and especially Avrian McCoy. Y'all were incredibly helpful this week, and I want to thank you. Also, the amazing crew, the Rockstar team at Righteous Media. Mighty Mercy Rich, creative Chris Rosenthal, and Roy Velchek, who shot all the video. They power the show and all the platforms and content around it. If you want to advertise on this show or at future Angry Americans events uh, or on future Righteous Media productions, shoot us a note. Go to angryamericans.us and you can find us. But we got some stuff cooking and we'd love to have you be a part of it. Bill Schultz producing this episode, Burn the Midnight Oil yet again. And for all his audio magic, thank you, Mr. Schultz, as always. Oscar Mike, our awesome merch partners. Check out all the new designs at angryamericans.us now. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. And it's time for Thank a Listener. Every week, I'll thank a few Angry Americans for checking us out and spreading the word. Before we do that, a reminder, we now have a new way for you to sound off, a new way for you to be a part of this show and this movement. We now have an Angry Americans phone line. You, yes, you, you, over there with the earbuds on. Yes, you, I see you. Yep, you, yep, yep, you, yep. You can call in. You can tell us what's got you angry and... I'll make you famous. Yep, I'll make you famous. And this week, another great caller sounding off. Hey, Paul, this is Mark Gonzalez from Colorado Springs, Colorado. I'm a uh, 30-year Navy veteran. And uh, look, hey, what makes me angry right now? is uh, willful ignorance in, in, in society today. You know, everything from anti-vaxxers to uh, climate change deniers and people that would support this administration when you know that this guy, you know, would you want to hire this guy? Would you want him working for you? Would you want him marrying your son or daughter based on his character? Not at all. Anyway, um, big time, that's kind of what's got me angry. It's kind of like the rest of us who seems sane, are like that guy in Woodstock saying, don't take the brown acid. And that's all we can do is scream out, but we know that people are going to do it anyway. Anyway, Paul, uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to sound off. Uh, love your show, and uh, look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Matt. Matt Gonzalez, we hear you. Really great point about Trump being a shitty role model. I am with you, and I love the brownies thing. I also love Colorado, and I love... Brownies from Colorado. So thanks for repping for that amazing part of our country. I hope I can make a swing through it when we kick off the Angry Americans tour soon. If you want to sound off like Matt, go to 833-33-ANGRY, 833-33-ANGRY. That's 833-332-6479. Call me, leave me a voicemail, and tell me what's got you angry. 
Tell me what you like about the show. Tell me what you think of our guests. And maybe we'll use it on a future show. A few more folks to thank, as always. First off, Dr. and Professor Jack Iwashna. I'm going to try to get his name right. Jack Iwashna. He's from Ann Arbor, Michigan. He tweets at Iwashna. I love this guy. His bio is pretty cool. He says, I work to improve how patients and their loved ones heal from sepsis, respiratory failure, and cardiac arrest. I mentor clinicians to become exceptional scientists. And he tweeted, oh my God, this is a great episode and conversation with Sam B. and Paul Rykoff. The entire thing is great, even by the standards of a podcast that is always great. Doc, you're great. We appreciate you. I appreciate you. Your Michigan Wolverines, not so much. They're not really convincing me. They almost lost to Army. Uh, They lost to Penn State last week, and I think they're going to lose to Notre Dame this weekend and probably get crushed by Ohio State in a few weeks. So I don't think Jim Harbaugh's got much longer as coach. So maybe you can take the job, Doc. I love it. I love the idea. And I also love Sadie Renander from Independence, Missouri. Uh, She tweets at Sadie in progress, and here's her bio. Wondering how we got here. Hoping we can enjoy the road ahead. She's a therapist, lifelong learner, and using the pronouns she and her. Sadie has a blog called In Progress, which I read. I will read your blog. She hasn't updated it often, but I liked it. And I want to read the intro because I thought it was good stuff. She wrote, welcome. Thanks for stopping by. Just for being here. I want to thank you for checking out the blog. Read one entry. Read them all. Comment. Participate in whatever way you choose. I hope it's a worthwhile use of your time. I'm thankful that I found an outlet after struggling to find a healthy coping strategy for my depression and anxiety. My head is frequently busy, and I don't find enough time and conversation to explore it all. I can finally feel the release of pressure as I start to let the thoughts out onto the keyboard. So as I've said, use my words whatever way suits you. If it helps or educates or entertains, then I have accomplished more than I could have hoped. I just appreciate that you spent some time here. Enjoy. I did enjoy it, Sadie, and I wanted to share your words because I thought they were inspiring. And I find that writing and expressing myself also helps me deal with the struggles that I'm going through. And Sadie listened to the last episode with Sam B., which has helped a lot of people and motivated a lot of people, inspired a lot of people. If you haven't seen it, go to Angry Americans right now and check it out. But Sadie tweeted, that was a great conversation. Thank you both for what you do. Thank you, Sadie, for what you do. Keep it up. And last... I want to thank Taylor Talks, BJK Farm MD. That's Taylor Talks. His bio says, tweets improved by bourbon. I can appreciate that. And he tweeted, I'd love to see every one of your guests so far just run the government instead of the clowns we have. Seriously, like the top 29 positions. Just split them up to be filled by your guests. Hashtag Real Americans. Taylor, I love that idea. All our guests from Angry Americans running the government that would be a fun game to play let's see Wes Moore for Secretary of Education Zainab Salbi or maybe Rachel Maddow for Secretary of State Agent Poo for Secretary of Labor Sarah Jessica Parker for Head of the National Endowment for the Arts Tom Colicchio well White House Chef or maybe Secretary of Agriculture Bradley Whitford aka Josh Lyman Definitely chief of staff. What about Dean Kamen? Head of NASA. Tulsi Gabbard, VA secretary. What about press secretary? Chris Cuomo or Soledad O'Brien, maybe? 
Amy McGrath, the fighter pilot for Secretary of Defense. Of course, Ethan Nadelman, our drug czar. Samantha B. Um, Health and Human Services, maybe? And how about Willie Geist or Wes Moore for President and Vice President? And Ron Perlman for shit. I don't know what Ron Perlman would do, but it would be fun. It's a fun game, Taylor. I appreciate it. Now that we're into episode 30, we're going to keep it coming. And this time next year, we should have quite a list of people to suggest for the cabinet and the new president, we hope. Uh, I'll continue to do these thank yous as often as I can, folks. I'm grateful to all of you. I love hearing from you. You're a pretty damn inspiring bunch. And I'm also excited to do events in the future, kick off a tour, and bring you all together in cities across America. We'll have some fun, and we can play the Angry Americans cabinet game. But until then, keep the feedback coming. Use the hashtag Angry Americans and sound off. I am grateful to all of you. And as always, I am exceptionally thankful to my family, my amazing wife, and my two boys. Now, some of the pumpkins are carved. We are already eating candy. I'm eating a lot. But there is still much debate about the costumes. Even now. First, my son said he wanted to be a ghost. Then a fish. Then Blaze the monster truck from Blaze and the Monster Machines. Now, it's something else. Something that I thought wouldn't be an issue. I never thought it would be an issue. He wants to be Spider-Man, which actually I'm not cool with. And here's why I've been slow rolling the introduction of superheroes to my four-year-old. I know superheroes. On some levels, they're awesome. On another level, they're not. And I kind of want to keep him away from characters and shows that are just about fighting. I'd rather him watch something with a team working together to solve a problem like Paw Patrol, much more than... PJ Masks, where they're fighting Night Ninja, or Batman is fighting Joker, or some other good guys fighting some other bad guys. And as it turns out, my son's school actually doesn't allow superhero toys. He's in pre-K, but it's in part because no kids want to be the bad guys. And if someone gets labeled the bad guy, he's outnumbered, or she's outnumbered. And that sucks. It's pretty simple, but maybe an improvement over when I was a kid. The bad guys sort of got bullied. And bullying is not acceptable. Never really was, but it's really not acceptable now. And that's a good thing. But he wants to be Spider-Man, and I'm so conflicted. As a Lifeline comic fan, especially a Marvel fan, I never thought I'd have a problem with my kid dressing up as Spider-Man. But here I am. Not to mention, I like doing family costumes. And although I guess we could dress the baby up as a spider, it's not my favorite. My wife could be Aunt May or Spider-Girl. Where does that leave me? Hobgoblin? Nah, I'm going to push my family for something different, like a family of dinosaurs or robots. A few years ago, we did WWE characters, and that was a hit. Ryder was at the time two, and he was a two-year-old Hulk Hogan. My wife, Randy Macho Man Savage, which was epic, and I was, of course, Stone Cold Steve Austin. But I'm tired of the bald white guy costumes. I've done a lot of them. I did Mr. Clean, Hitman, uh, Destro which was awesome, but that silver paint never came off. Hellboy was a hit. Even Ron Perlman would be impressed by that. And the biggest hit of all, Joe the Plumber. But I'm kind of tired of the ball guy stuff. So we still have a week. I haven't decided. I appreciate your suggestions. Stay tuned, and we will have a happy, happy Halloween. But thank you for your feedback. Thank you for suggestions. And finally, as always, my deepest thanks to you, my dear listener, for tuning in. 
Please continue to tell your friends to check this podcast out. We were up like 45% last week and continue to move up in the charts, uh, political charts here in, in the U.S. and in other countries. So if you're on an Apple device, please leave the show a quick review. Uh, we don't charge you for it. It's 100% free. So I just ask you to share it with a couple of friends. That's your price of admission. And check out angryamericans.us. It's improved weekly. We got cool videos there. And use the hashtag angryamericans, and maybe I will thank you in a future episode. And definitely keep the feedback coming on social media. I see you. I hear you. I'm with you. Next week, we'll be back with another fresh show. We try to drop them at zero dark 30 in the morning. On Thursdays, Eastern Time, that means you can get it on your commute to work Thursday. If we're late, hang in there. We'll try to do our best to get it up always on Thursday morning. Then you can take it into your Friday or your weekend or your Monday or whatever. But until then, stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share. And we will keep this Angry Americans movement growing week by week. You will not be able to stay home, brother. And remember, it's okay to be angry. And no, you're not alone. We're all a little angry. And that's because we're paying attention. And together, we can turn that vigilant anger into positive impact. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thanks for listening. Stay vigilant, America. And aloha. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the shape of a war theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia.